Hello, dear listener. Gabe from the Editing Bay here. Yet again, I have to get in ahead of the episode and let you know that those little clicks are unfortunately back. We did record this episode and the last one in one go, so unfortunately they made it into both. However, we do really enjoy this episode. We hope that they are not distracting for you as we are very excited to share it with you and hope that you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I am, as ever, your trepidatious co-host, Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 certified in wine, and I'm an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. Going through the process of being absolute nerds for hours and days on the internet in order to bring you the value of our study. Yes, yes. Speaking of. (laughs) Speaking of. So in our last episode... Uh, we were talking about kind of the science of perception, and we're going into some different studies and and destroying Adam ruins everything, yeah. facts and logic. Yeah, we are just like dunking on that man, uh, just <laughs> big dunks, <laughs> dunks, two pointer, three pointer, five pointers, ten pointers, ten pointers. We actually, That's I think we're we're in the back stands, yeah, shooting. We're shooting. We've gotten the pizza for the whole stadium. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they had to stop doing that actually because people were like practicing for it no i love that yeah, me too if, if you like pizza that much a i am judging you a little bit but b i do respect the hustle no 100 well they were getting like pizza for an entire section of people so it was it was more like a robin hood type thing in my opinion even better yeah you know even better just like speaking truth to power that's a university <laughs> the power of papa john <laughs> the power of papa john <laughs> power of pizza <laughs> hey papa john is the godfather of pizza <laughs> definitely talks like one apparently yeah, apparently um so <laughs> so in our last episode we were talking about just the, the science of perception going through some different studies that have been kind of miscited and giving more perspective on how expertise is developed from a neurological standpoint and Mm -hmm. how your perception works from that neurological standpoint. Yeah. But today we wanted to go into a little bit more of how that is applied in the philosophy of how wine tastings are done and how expertise is perceived in both wine culture and the market in general. Yeah, so this episode is basically uh, me researching for the last episode and going, this reminds me of this, which reminds me of this, and then this episode happened. So uh, we love to know. see it. We're we're gonna we're gonna talk about some philosophy. I'm so sorry, but I'm not at all sorry at the no, same he, time. No, he has quotes from philosophers in the notes, so yeah. be afraid. Yeah. Be very afraid. Yeah. Well, you know, things like this interest me. So I guess kind of what started me down this road is in reading up for last episode in the tasting science and what started that whole thing, which was the Adam Ruins Everything video. I kept thinking to myself, why do people have such a strong reaction to expertise and snobbery, which rightfully so is snobbery, but then why do people also lump in expertise as snobbery? And what flaws in how we perceive expertise itself might feed into that? These are the questions I ask myself because I'm really normal. <laughs> um, I'm a real boy. <laughs> Watch the new Pinocchio by Guillermo del oh, Toro, if you haven't, by the way. Yeah. Uh, fantastic movie. Very good philosophical concepts in that movie as well. Um, but yeah, so that's what led to this. So starting off this whole discussion, is expertise, particularly within the wine world, as reliable as we think it is? So when you look at any discussion on the internet about wine experts, or wine snobs, as some people will label all wine experts, which K 
can absolutely be a thing. Let's be real. We've all encountered it, I'm sure. I like to think of it as a spectrum that exists between the snob and the cynic. It's kind of like they both paint their perception and the perception of the people around them to an opinion that is not reflective of reality. Yeah. And, you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect is very real. And there are people that reach a certain point of wine knowledge that then think they know all of wine knowledge. and Where they have ascended. Yeah. And um, those people are normally quite wrong on many things. So if you've ever encountered that person, I know I have. Just know we're not all like that. We promise. So that all being said, looking at discussions online, you know, so many people just have this embedded belief that anyone who dares take wine seriously has to be full of it. Yeah. And you can't be doing it out of a real reason like interest or fascination or because it makes you happy. It's because you want to be better than other people. Yeah. That just gets me thinking. Is expertise, let's just entertain the question, is it really reliable, especially as it pertains to wine? So there is a very interesting video. I'm also into, um, I'm not an economist, to be clear. Do not ask me to do proofs and formulae because I don't know the maths behind economics, but I do actually enjoy reading up on economics. I am such a nerd. (laughs) I'm really exposing myself on this episode, but there's a really good YouTube channel called Unlearning Economics, and he does live interviews with other less mainstream economists, so like heterodox economists, post-Keynesians, even Marxists, stuff like that. And he has a really interesting interview with Dr. Danielle Guizo, and the title is What Good is Economic Expertise? And you can find that interview on YouTube as a video format of the video interview on his live channel on Learning Economics Live. You can also find this on, I know for sure Spotify, but I'm assuming most podcast directories as well, because he also releases these as audio podcasts. And this was a very interesting talk. I understand that economics is not wine. These are two very different industries. But she gets into some of the more interesting, uh, Dr. Danielle Guizo gets more into some of the interesting foundations on how institutional knowledge is formed through the lens of Foucault. If you don't know who Foucault is, he's a post-structuralist philosopher who did make some very interesting points about how power shapes history. And she talks about how in economics, the people who have institutional power in education, let's say, really determine the trajectory of economics itself. But that doesn't always mean that it's the right direction to take. Yeah. Because the wrong people might be in power saying the wrong things. So understanding that it is a different field, I do think, though, that there is transference onto pretty much any industry because nepotism and the like happens anywhere. Through the lens of how does power and who holds influence, or uh, as some people will call it, social capital, how does that influence expertise in the wine industry? Well, for example, we see that many wine judges seem to fall into line with whoever the most famous wine critics are or the most famous wine institutions like some of the big publications. 
we see this. There's literally a term in the industry for this, parkerization. Yeah, that's the big one. Um, and that one is probably the most annoying one because it seems to be draining the life and character out of so many places. Yes. And if you don't know what parkerization means, it's basically the influence of the wine critic Robert Parker, notably his preference for very big, jammy red wines. That has even started to influence how winemakers from different regions in the world are making their wines. Yeah. So, so they like, can get ratings, good ratings from him. So like an Argentinian Malbec has a lovely profile that's typically going to be blacker fruits. You can get some spice in there because of their oaking. Um, and then it's going to have these leathery tannins. It's not going to be super juicy, but it's going to be fairly prevalent with the fruit. It's from a fairly arid place, so the character is very distinct, is what I'm trying to communicate. And now we're seeing more and more Argentinian Malbecs trying to be just the biggest, jammiest things ever, so that they can get a little label on their yeah on their wine, so that it'll sell better here in the Americas. Yeah, but Robert right here Parker, in the Americas, I mean here in the United States. Excuse yeah. me, Argentina is in the Americas. <laughs> but yeah, so. Influence of parkerization is a very good example of this person who has a lot of power and social capital in the industry shaping what is acceptable for wine to be on a very practical level, right? At least if you want to sell your wine, because you want that, as Michael said, fancy label that says you got a 90 point score from Robert Parker. That is an example of expertise guiding something that a lot of people consider to have harmed the wine industry on the whole people within the wine industry have mm-hmm. said that so we have that we also have the fact that wine competitions on every level can be very political rather than a true assessment of the wine itself yeah there are certain considerations that are given to certain people because they're more notable or more prominent mm-hmm. in one way or another Can you afford to even get your wines into these competitions is another big hurdle for some really small wineries, right? And it's kind of sad because it's like, so like the Virginia Governor's Cup, that just started up again. And the fact that you do have to consider things like tourism and you're having to consider like, oh, well, we're trying to get ourselves more on the map. There are all these different considerations that are aimed at being able to grow the wine industry. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it allows such a sharp fall off at a certain level is yeah, it's it, just not ideal. And there are certain wines that I have seen win Governor's Cup Awards that I think to myself, that was because of the name that's on the label, not mm-hmm. the wine itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I will leave it at that. I truly am not trying to badmouth anyone here, but these are things that I have seen in my real experience in even just the Virginia wine scene. And right? we have seen some people who have won in the Virginia Governor's Cup that totally deserved it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, oh, for or, sure. Like Raymond sure. Florence, yeah. to name one. Yeah. We mention them fairly frequently because it's it was just a delightful experience. But they yeah. had. I was uh, just there not too long ago. Yeah. And they had a one that had a great conversation with silver. Jill. Shout out, Jill. Andy. <laughs> D was there too. Did you uh, talk with the the corgis? I did. They're they're doing. They said hi, everyone. Oh, good. Thank you for listening. Please listen more. (laughs) (laughs) Follow us on social media at Laid Back Lunch. (laughs) They're so supportive. I love those guys. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy that they can talk too. They really train them well. Well, no, that was the wine. But you know, it's 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 the energy that they give off. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's like the I turned into Doctor Doolittle after uh, three glasses. (laughs) (laughs) God, no. (laughs) 
but it's not yeah. limited to bipeds or quadrupeds i can hear insects <laughs> yeah no so Raynard's great they deserve to win uh the awards that they have won the governor's cup is not illegitimate i'm just saying you can't in a lot of these competitions take politics out of it it's just it's impossible because this is a network of people and people influence one another yeah. right and they have different needs and they need to be fed and, and you know how much more in a napa valley competition where you have some of the most prestigious wineries in the country going up against one another or international judging competitions imagine how much more at that level you're going to have all these competing interests from old world trying to protect their status versus the new world which is a distinction that probably shouldn't exist to begin with like and that was very well uh well represented in the movie bottle shock where they had to do a blind tasting and when they discovered that they liked the california wine it was a scandal it was a scandal the the people that were there these judges from france gave a huge guffaw about it they were they were completely offended that they had been bamboozled, quote unquote, into liking a wine that was going to damage the prestige mm-hmm. of their of their country. Yeah. So then, you know, we have nepotism as well. I already mentioned nepotism, but it does happen in wine. Uh, unfortunately, it happens everywhere. But the big example of this that I thought of was the quartermaster sommelier's cheating scandal. If you don't know about this. There was, uh, and if you don't know what the quartermaster sommeliers is, I should probably establish that probably. first. Their certifications carry the most prestige for sommeliers, and they have the quartermaster sommeliers, which is the very, very top. There's only a couple hundred in the world. It's a very difficult exam. It spans a couple of days. People try it five, six, seven times. You have to spend crazy amounts of money just to do the program. Like very prestigious. But in 2018, I believe. There was a cheating scandal where a proctor for the exam was caught giving information about the exam to some of the students. Wow. And this is one of the most prestigious bodies in wine who totally disgraced themselves over nepotism, essentially. Oh, was it nepotism? From what I understand, yeah. There was um, speculation that there was some kind of relationship between this guy and the students that were involved. Like, Like what type? I would need to go back and read the report. There's probably wanna... a little bit of a scandal flavoring because even in news reporting, you know, we yeah. have that same like it has to be marketable. Yeah, there's actually an episode of Wine for Normal People about that scandal. If you want to listen to it, I don't remember the title off the top of my head. Hello, dear listener. Gabe from the Editing Bay yet again here. I just wanted to provide a little bit of clarification on two points at this portion of the episode. The first point being the CMS cheating scandal and the relationship that I talked about between the proctor and the student here. Uh, It came across on listening back to the episode while editing that uh, it seems a little more salacious than I intended it to. In my reading of the articles and news that was published about this situation, the relationship was implied to be a mentor-mentee relationship. At least that's my understanding of how it went down. That's why I labeled it under nepotism instead of anything else. Uh, I think that's a pretty cut and dry case of nepotism. Point number two. uh, So the episode that I am referring to of Wine for Normal People here is episode 330, Journalistic Integrity in Wine with Don Cavanaugh of Wine Searcher. I would highly recommend you go and listen to this episode if you're curious about the CMS cheating scandal at all. Or if you're enjoying what we're talking about in this episode so far and what we will continue to be talking about, uh, because they actually talk a lot about some things that we touch on here, and that being biases in wine journalism and things like that. It's a very interesting episode. Would highly recommend giving it a listen. And let's get back to the show. So 
nepotism is not uncommon. And then we also have, in terms of like the expertise and who says what is worth what from a monetary standpoint, if you were blinded on a $300 bottle of wine and a $50 bottle of wine, even a really qualified person probably could tell a difference, but the enjoyment of it, there's diminishing returns yeah. as you get higher up in those price points. And my question is, is would anyone actually purchase a Petrus or a Domaine Romanet Conti at that price point if the name was removed from that label? Yeah. No, nobody would. But the industry says these are some of the most in-demand exclusive wines in the world. And yes, there are market forces. There is a constraint on supply that does drive these prices up. But at the end of the day... Yes, experts say they're these amazing, fantastic wines, but how much of that is they're truly that fantastic and they're exclusive? Yeah. And therefore they are fantastic. Well, and there's this whole idea and it even goes into uh, a lot of green technologies. Now, I'm a huge advocate of green technologies. I want them integrated in everything that we can because we've done enough harm. But there are a lot of technologies that are very hard to get to because of their price point. Yeah. And so people will end up buying things like the Tesla car uh, or they'll get, you know, some sort of really fancy solar system for their house. Not because they necessarily care for the environment, but because it shows a willingness to spend a lot of money as a status symbol. It's a social signifier. It's a social signifier. The fact that wines can be treated the same way should be informing us that this is a dynamic, a tool of certain communities as well in order to develop their standing with other people. Through exclusion. Through exclusion. Very specifically. Exactly. It's another reality. It's another reason why these end up getting to a threshold of price that keep other people from being able to enjoy them. Exactly. On that note, many people in the industry will never be able to try a DRC. Yeah. Like that tells you how exclusive it is. Well, no. And it's like as a as a wine shop worker selling wines that I would never be able to afford to actually try. Yeah. It's uh, it's a little hard, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, first yeah. of all. But also, it's just kind of like at that level, it's just like this is just pure profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This I, is. I, I still maintain I will pay up to about $100 for a bottle of wine. Even that's pushing it quite far for me, particularly on my current budget. Um, But, you know, what I would be willing if I had infinite money. But after that, it's just I really don't see it, you know. No, I have had some wines that were above that price point, but I didn't taste them blind. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wish that I had because I really enjoyed them. And I'm not sure how much of that was painted by that expectation. Well, we'll get a little bit more into some of the economics here in a second about why that phenomenon happens. Um, But to go back to experts for a second, you have to ask yourself as well who these experts are, Mm. because not every expert is created equal. You know, were these experts trained to taste properly? And by taste properly, I mean, like go through structure as well as flavor or Was it someone who kind of like got lucky and got a job at a winery maybe and worked their way up, but never had actual sit down formal training on wine tasting and they're able to write essentially a poem about a wine rather than a description of the wine itself where, yes, you can tell me about how it's your mother's bedroom and her lipstick and 
cut grass and that one tree from the park next to where you grew up. The first time I ever uh, <clears throat> pet a puppy. Exactly. <laughs> like, but okay. Is it fruity? Is it floral? Like you're not telling me anything about that. You're not telling about yeah. the acid structure. Is it refreshing? Is it heavy? Is it rich? Like what's going on here? This is a uh, fruity with uh, notes of trauma. It seems yeah. like, but how many prestigious reputable sources still, still write like yeah. that well and that's the thing it's kind of like was this a promotion or an appointment who let you in yeah <laughs> yeah and on that note as well like the panel at your county fair is going to be different than an international championship or you would hope so at least like who gets to judge these things is going to have tighter and tighter restrictions in theory the higher up you go so that's also something you have to factor in because you do want people with proven palettes and i know we just ripped on robert parker I would say deservedly so in some ways, but well, we he does have a palette. Yeah, 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 yeah. Him as a person, I'm sure he's wonderful. Um, and he but, can like a jammy wine. Sure, but not everyone likes jammy wine is the problem. But we do know, on the other hand, his palette has been proven to correlate to wine sales. Now, post-parkerization, does that mean anything? Maybe not. But part of his claim to fame was calling a Bordeaux vintage that was projected to undersell and then sold very well. Mm, mm. And so there is the question of expertise in terms of what level are you at? Well, and, and that's the interesting thing. There have been now a lot of people, specifically this one guy out of California, and he basically has been trying to deal with the whole idea of the county fair judging system because even the people with the proven palates still will have certain biases that they carry into it mm -hmm. that aren't even necessarily malicious. I'm not talking about a bias as, oh, well, nothing good could come out of the Napa Valley or something like that. Yeah. It's more like these guys will consistently rate wines that are white lower. Mm -hmm. You know, little things that the person doesn't even realize that they're doing. Yeah. And it's hard to codify and it's hard to account for. Exactly. You know, you're right. And a lot of expert biases and even layman perceptions regarding wine expense and even region. Um, there's a term that I'm going to use called commodity fetishism. Uh, this comes from Marx. And if you heard the name Marx and you're freaking out right now, don't freak out. I promise. It's just one quote. It's one concept from him. I do think this applies. So commodity fetishism is not fetishism in the sexual sense. This is fetishism coming from an older usage of the word that was used to denote religious objects and the idea that these objects kind of take on a transcendental property yeah. removed from the actual production of that object. The Ring of Power from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That That is a quite literally like it has imbued power into the ring itself. Well, and, and we're talking about perceptual uh, power. So it's like the idea that once this thing is perceived as being magical, that it takes on that characteristic in the world mm -hmm. because of the expectation, because of the fact that it's perceived to be that thing. Yeah. So when we apply that to commodity fetishism, or at least as Marx ideated this. I'm so glad that we got to to explain that because that's actually one of my favorite little old uses of a word that's oh, yeah, changed yeah. into a thing. It, it's an interesting concept and still applies today. So for commodity fetishism under Marx, in Marx's own words, he says the commodity form and the value relation of the products of labor within which it appears have absolutely no connection with the physical nature of the commodity and the material relations arising out of this. It is nothing but the definite social relation between men themselves, which assumes here, for them, the fantastic form of a relation between things. 
I call this the fetishism which attaches itself to the products of labor as soon as they are produced as commodities, and is, therefore, inseparable from the production of commodities. So that comes from Capital, a Critique of Political Economy, or Das Kapital. Again, I'm not here to fully endorse everything Marx ever said, but I do think this is a very real phenomenon that can be applied to wine specifically, because it's also a Veblen good. And it's like shoes, even. Like, you know, yeah. your your designer shoes, those are a fetishized commodity. Exactly. And that's also a Veblen good. So a Veblen good is a commodity whose demand increases as price increases. So luxury shoes, yes, really any designer item, uh, diamonds, mechanical watches like Rolexes, perfumes, luxury cars, that sort of thing, where yeah. it is merely the fact that it is exclusive and there is a very low supply that drives up that demand. And the demand increases from the price increase, right? So like it's it's the price tag that sells people on it. So we already know from that that perception greatly increases value of certain objects as well. So a wine expert should know that price does not inherently equal quality, but a bias towards the more prestigious option when ranking is almost inevitable when the label is some of the only information you have about that wine. Relating that back to commodity fetishism, you know, wine itself almost takes in the public conscience this transcendental aspect of luxury and opulence and hedonism, right? It's because it's amazing. It, it's just so good and amazing, which, like, I don't disagree with that. I love no, wine. I mean, I, I sit there and I sip a wine inside of my uh, my Victorian library, mm-hmm. and I just Your look... haunted Victorian library. Oh, absolutely. That increased the home ownership value by at least $300,000. You know, it's actually even the thread <laughs> count of my drapes in that library are primed <laughs> for ghostly possession. Yeah. And I just look out over the masses and feel such a, a feeling of spirituality and superiority it really is what it is yeah and and it is what it is it's such a good way to put it the wine is luxurious because it is luxurious right exactly it is disconnected going back to drc right it is this single vineyard in burgundy now listen i will not debate i'm sure drc is fantastic I'm not saying it's bad wine. I'm sure, again, it's very good wine. Never be able to confirm it, though. Exactly. And the idea of Romanet Conti is so disconnected in a very real way, and this is what Marx was getting at, from the labor that went into producing that wine. You don't think about the vineyard hands that are picking those grapes. You might hear hand-harvested. I'm sure they're hand-harvested. But that serves to further increase the luxury element, right? It's not about the laborers. It's not about was this wine put in French oak or Slovenian oak and for how long and blah, Nobody's blah, blah. asking those questions. Nobody's asking those. It's, oh, it's Romane Conti. It's exclusive. It's expensive. Nobody gets to drink this and I get to drink this now. And that is an issue I take with the expertise falling into the trap of promoting these wines because they're good for the market and they're good for the exclusivity factor. But that's really the only purpose they serve. Well, they do serve one other purpose. Which is? Well, when you want to feel really good about yourself, one thing that you can do instead of going out and accomplishing something is you can get something that is exclusive and have all of the prestige that is given to that thing transferred to you. True. By enjoying it. True. By having it. Because once you possess a thing of value, you get to feel more valuable. At least under the current economic system. Well, and, and just it's a, it's a conveyed value thing. 
you might enjoy it, but the enjoyment might be being painted by the fact that you feel a lot better for just having it in Whoa. exclusivity. Michael, that's so funny that you mentioned that because that fits perfectly into Baudrillard, which is who I'm going to talk about next. Oh boy. <laughs> Darn <laughs> it. I've fallen into the pitfall of one of the classic blunders, one of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well known. <laughs> in the winter. In the winter. Uh, <laughs> um, is, you know, never talk philosophy with Gabe. You'll actually start tracking with him. <laughs> so, uh, Baudrillard, if you don't know, was uh, another postmodern philosopher like Foucault. One of Baudrillard's big claims was simulacrum and hyperreality. That's not what I'm going to talk about here, although those are fascinating concepts in and of themselves. You should check them out on Wikipedia. It's very easy to understand on Wikipedia. You but did not just reference Wikipedia on I our did. podcast. I did. Hey, Wikipedia is a good source. It's at least a good preliminary read to know where to focus your study further. Okay. All right. Okay, Derry. Um, <laughs> Derry, okay. Derry, okay. Anywho, so, so Baudrillard, Baudrillard, he talks about a thing called sign value, which is very similar to what you were just stating. And it's very similar to commodity fetishism, but it's not quite the same thing. So sign value, and this is coming from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, because I couldn't find an actual quote from Baudrillard outlining a concrete definition. So this quote from Stanford says, Baudrillard claims that commodities are bought and displayed as much for their sign value as their use value and that the phenomenon of sign value has become an essential constituent of the commodity and consumption in the consumer society. This position was influenced by Veblen, and we just talked about Veblen's goods, notion of conspicuous consumption and display of commodities analyzed in this theory of the leisure class that Baudrillard argued has become extended to everyone in the consumer society. For Baudrillard, the entire society is organized around consumption and display of commodities through which individuals gain prestige, identity, and standing. In this system, the more prestigious one's commodities, houses, cars, clothes, and so on, the higher one's standing in the realm of sign value. Thus, just as the words take on meaning according to their position in the system of language, so sign values take on meaning according to their place in a differential system of prestige and status. Mm. So to sum it up, sign value is the inherent value given to what a commodity signals about your position in terms of class. So as an example, to hopefully uh, make this more easy to understand, Michael, Hopefully you aren't reading the notes or else you'll see what the answer to this question is. No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm, I'm looking directly at you. <laughs> um, if I'm directing a movie and I want to have a person drink a wine and I want this person to be very immediately perceived as being high status, what kind of wine am I going to be putting in their hand? It's going to be a Cabernet Sauvignon more than likely, or it's going to be a Pinot Noir. It's going to be from a prestigious place. Uh, You're thinking about this as a wine drinker. Uh, Think about this as someone who knows nothing about wine. Uh, well, a red wine at the very least. Um, really? Or no, excuse me, champagne. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Sorry. I'm thinking more of like the, the subtle night type deal. But if, but, if it's like a high status party, yeah, champagne. Everybody's drinking champagne. And that that's why I say you're thinking about this from a wine drinker because you and I know about the I've been in this grapes, world a while. But, <laughs> but Red wine, yes. The red wine does typically indicate more sophisticated taste. Unless it's but, champagne. But not necessarily explicitly rich, opulent aesthetic, which is yeah. absolutely what champagne is used for a lot in media. That's actually something you can look for. 
is when champagne pops up who's drinking it and mm-hmm. why it's very interesting for media analysis well no it's it's a it's an interesting take because like you also look at what these different things are connotating so like your red wine drinker is going to be perceived as having a deeper level of consideration about mm-hmm. things your whiskey drinker or your bourbon drinker is going to be perceived as being more masculine masculine first of all mm-hmm. uh, but also maybe more traditional then you have your champagne drinkers and those are definitely going to be like we are enjoying luxury we can enjoy luxury and we will continue to do so as a pastime yeah so this convergence of sign value commodity fetishism and veblen goods to me encapsulates a big problem with expertise within the industry which is we we are not immune to the ideologies that perpetuate themselves within the culture we live in. You don't think about the culture. You, well, I mean, you do think about the culture you grew up in, but not normally unless you encounter something that runs counter to that culture in a critical lens. So it's not outside the realm of possibility to think on a philosophical level that experts who come particularly more the old guard of the wine industry who came up through that very exclusive... Yes, at times, very pretentious method of wine criticism and whatnot in the traditional modes of thought about wine, particularly as a luxury good, are going to be very susceptible to falling into these traps of, well, the thing is good because the thing signifies good things. Yeah. And that's the expectation of it being good or the necessity for it to be good, painting their perception. Or because having it confers goodness onto you, right? Mm -hmm. Even we see that with having good taste, right? There's that whole thing about the nouveau riche are tacky and excessive, but old money, they they have taste because you can't buy taste. You have to learn taste. And so even taste itself and, and a discerning palate on a very literal sense are considered to be these connotations of wisdom and expertise. And sometimes that really can just be a very surface level grasp. Yeah, well, especially since, because here's the other problem, a thing can be very good and have prestige. Yeah. But the people who have access to it because of whatever reason, whether it's through their family or it's because of a certain wealth status, because they formulate the opinion that's accepted their opinion is accepted as a valid thing. Yeah. So you're not evaluating their process of evaluation. You are simply knowing that they have access and that they are confirming what everybody knows to be true. Mm -hmm. And then everybody points back to them and says, well, they must know what they're talking about. Yes, exactly. So kind of to wrap this section up, because I actually do want to talk about the benefits of expertise as well. Mm -hmm. Um, No one's palate is infallible. And we shouldn't expect that from any critic or judge that is in the wine industry. At least I don't think so. And holding people to this standard does create an interesting kind of almost self-fulfilling prophecy where you produce people who can't admit that they can be wrong. So they give the air of infallibility. And then studies like the one that was done by Frederick Boucher in the previous episode that we talked about come out. And they shake up the perception of wine because you treat people as if they have this super special talent that no one else can attain of tasting wine or knowing a lot about wine, right? And yeah. it's true that not everyone will have that. that. That's very real. But 
again, as we talked in the last episode, a lot of that is training yourself to literally make brain connections to be able to navigate these things. Well, and that's that's one of the the humble things about it, because you have that Brochet study that shows human perception is actually really influenced by a lot of things that we don't know until we identify Mm -hmm. and then we have to account for them. Yeah. But even the most well-trained expert isn't going to be able to tell you your palate. Mm -hmm. You need to have that process for yourself. You need to train yourself in what you're doing. Having the expert there and just assuming that you should have their opinion it's damaging to you. Yeah. You won't be able to get to the same extent that they are at if it is that they actually are a real expert. Mm-hmm. If what you're doing is just parroting them while not developing yourself. Yeah. Holding this standard, like you said, it, it creates this very hostile environment towards honesty in a way mm-hmm. and also change. And it also builds up an ego amongst the wine elite themselves mm-hmm. that they cannot be questioned. They yeah. cannot be challenged. And they're creating the wine gods. Yeah. And of course, then the uneducated masses, uh, and, and I say that tongue in cheek, but there is also a literal element of wine requires education to understand on a certain level, not to enjoy, but to understand. To people who don't know that and who just think that people who do have that education are full of it, they want to celebrate when these new studies come out and they say, oh, oh, it debunks the whole thing. And really, it's so much more nuanced. Well, and it's, and it's a reactionary thing. It's just like you have this horrible circle of the novice who is trying to get into wine, worshiping the expert, mm-hmm. the expert assigning themselves a value that tilts them against the people who are trying to learn. Then you have the people who are trying to learn, reacting to that hostility from the wine world, trying to debunk the wine world yeah. and wine tasting and production as practice. And it's it's just terrible. It's yeah. it's not helping anybody. You're not helping anybody to grow. You're not helping the industry to advance. Mm-hmm. And you're certainly not helping to weed out the bad elements. And you're you're not respecting wine as a product of labor. Yeah. It's, again, going back to that commodity fetishism, it's just this thing that confers value in and of itself by being luxurious and hedonistic. And so then the person that is sitting there going through and, you know, they're tasting the grapes, they're tasting the must, they're trying to figure out what to do with this wine in order to bring it to a specific point of maximizing its potential— And they're putting in so much hard work. Mm -hmm. And the people who are tending their vineyards put in so much hard work. And it's not glorious work. No, when you walk into farming. (laughs) Yeah. When you walk into a vineyard, you have to clean your shoes with with chlorinated water. Like there's all these things that you have to do and that you just have to know walking in in order to take care of grapevines. Mm -hmm. And it's hard and it's not opportune. The things that can affect the grapes, it's not gonna be a nine to five. Exactly. It's hard work. Yeah. And you diminish that when you either glorify the thing to be more than just that product, or you dismiss the whole industry because you got a little offended. Yeah. So, is rejecting expertise the better option? No. No, it's not. Developing your critical thinking might be a good option. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, But we can be critical of experts and institutions, as I clearly am. If you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, you've probably picked up on that at this point. What? But, uh, you think that's how we come across? 
I think that's how I come across. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but but critical doesn't mean throwing the whole system away either. No. So oftentimes culture and ideology, as I said previously, are inherited and self-perpetuating. It's not that wine snobs are are sitting in this dark room as a cabal trying to gatekeep everyone from reaching their level, although that kind of happens at certain levels. Again, the CMS scandal exposed that there was a lot of elitism going on in gatekeeping. And just the way that that exam is set up is very gatekeepy to begin with. You mean that a muggle has come to become a sommelier? I, Unheard of. Well, seriously, like in in some ways, you, you have to have money to even be able to afford some of these courses and get the prestige and whatnot. And if you don't have that going in, you don't get it. So there's there's that element. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that like the wine industry as a whole or that every certifying body or whatever is sitting there, you know, twiddling their fingers evilly like a Bond villain and petting their cat saying, how can we further increase the exclusivity of wine? That's just not how these things work. When I say that the ideology and the culture is self-perpetuating, it's that people get brought up under that system and they just perpetuate it because that's how the system runs. It's not always a conscious process of discrimination against the plebeians. Yeah, it's like, turns out you're actually a product of your culture whether or not you want to be, and you have to learn how to analyze that and to move on from things that you find to be harmful. Yeah. It's hard work. (laughs) Yeah. And so despite maybe the way that wine elites will present information about wine, there is data, as we talked about in the last episode, that they do know what they're talking about, at least on some level. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and depending on what practices that they actually have in place, it's not yeah. going to be the sommelier that got in because they were fed answers. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the person who goes in and has a consistent practice of wine. Exactly. Uh, wine tasting, wine identification, probably some actual wine making experience. And this is actually the sort of thing that uh, Daniel J. Levitin talks about. He's a neuroscientist and he talks about how expertise is developed. So the idea of expertise in wine being something that can be corrupted culturally shouldn't exclude us from recognizing that the practice of wine tasting and wine making is an expertise that can be culminated. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, study, practice, and repeated exposure to certain aroma compounds and tasting them and identifying them and giving language to them reinforces and adjusts the sensory maps that your brain makes for wine and it refines them and it makes them more efficient. So you're able to more efficiently and, and exactingly, if that's a word I can use, taste wine. Then they, what I mentioned in the last episode, they've now mapped people using an fMRI in order to see the difference between an expert's brain and a novice's brain while tasting wine. There's even a difference in just a voluntary activation of certain parts of the brain that an expert is going to be able to do. And the value that that can give to you as somebody who is either a novice or who is an amateur or like us is, I would say, advanced amateurs. Do we want to say that? No, because we're we're professional. We've been professional for a bit. I, I would say professional. Yeah, professional, yeah. but not experts. Yeah. Is the fact that they do have I didn't that... study for that level three exam for yeah. weeks on end for nothing. For real, for real, for real. Um, <laughs> But it's the fact that they do have that connection between their language center and their sensory perception 
that does not exist naturally. It is a thing that you have to create. Exactly. And that allows us to develop our language, which makes the experience more vivid, more rich, more memorable, and more communicable. Yeah. And an expert opinion is not guaranteed to always be right, but it is still going to be more informed and more reliable than the opinion of just a layperson who has only drank like under $20 wines. Yeah. Now, I know I just roasted the experts, but speaking of you under 20 drinkers out there, I'm coming for you next. Oh, boy. And uh, this this is where maybe I'll rile some feathers. I don't know. Um, We do try very hard to be accessible, but one of my biggest intolerances in life is in curiosity and an unwillingness to branch beyond your own horizons. And something that I've noticed in a lot of these discussions around wine snobs and experts and are they full of crap and are they not, is there's this very loud contingent of people and very vocal contingent of people who seem to prefer cheaper wine merely for the fact that it's cheaper, which is just as much of a bias as drinking wines exclusively that are over $70 and from Napa, California. 100%. That is just as snobbish, in my opinion, as any person who tries to write some highfalutin tasting note that makes no sense because of some obscure note that they picked up. Yeah, well, right? let's let's really examine why this might be the choice that somebody has made. It could be a budgetary concern. Sure. It's fine. That's not really what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, no, no. He- hear me out. It could be a budgetary concern. It could be an element of, oh, I just don't think that it's really going to do any better. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's the one that's just like rebelling against the notion that there can be wine that should be that price. Mm-hmm. My thought, and and that someone can tell you that it's that better. it's worth it, and that's that's my whole point. It's like you might have a budgetary concern. Sure, you might not have the training. To we be have able budgetary to. concerns. We have budgetary concerns. You might not have a refined enough palate to taste the difference between your twenty and your seventy dollar bottle. But the moment that you try to glass over everything because of your limitations that are not like wrong. You're not wrong for having those limitations. You're literally just crapping on people because you're not willing to admit a deficiency. Yeah. And listen, if you prefer genuinely cheaper wines, that's fine because cheaper red wines tend to be uh, younger wines. They tend to be easier drinking wines. They tend to be fruitier. Well, and with whites as well. Um, some nice jammy stuff some nice jammy stuff and and a lot of this comes down to just how production drives up certain costs so oaking increases cost um aging increases cost so these you know cheaper young wines like crianzas from spain i love crianzas from spain and a lot of them are like around the ten dollar mark a lot of them are under fifteen dollars and i have no problem with them i drink a lot of most of the wines i drink actually are under 20 dollars it's not like i'm sitting here on a high horse saying you have to like expensive wine yeah but refusing to expand your horizons and your perceptions of wine merely because higher price points you think are bs is not a position i respect no because it's again it's just as biased as not drinking cheap wine it's just the inverse. Yeah, you're just literally being like, oh, well, I'm not willing to try it. And if I did try it, I'm going to allow my perception to be painted by this negative review mm-hmm. before even having the opportunity. That's almost like 
it's the opposite problem where it's like, I need to put you in a blind tasting so that you're free to enjoy a thing that's higher priced. Yeah. And I think also speaking as an American in the U S we have a big cultural bias against academics and experts to begin with. Oh, we're talking about the anti-intellectuals. Yeah, I get it. Being told that you're wrong or that you don't know enough on a subject is not always nice, but that doesn't mean that the person telling you that is wrong. If you think that certain, I don't know, uh, miracle medicines that are not backed by any peer-reviewed science are the way to go and your doctor tells you this is actually harmful, you can continue taking that thing, but you really should listen to your doctor because they they studied this no homeopathy is totally a thing you get hit by a car (laughs) you scrape off a little bit of the paint put it into Mm, some water mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah. cures like yeah yeah some uh metal shavings from the frame yeah 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 because that's what harmed you yeah 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 you know again i'm not trying to talk down to anyone here but there is a level where you have to accept that there are people that know things you don't now, yeah. they might not say it in a kind way, and I absolutely recognize, particularly in wine, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to say people can't be jerks about it. They absolutely can. But if we want to be fair about wine, and, and we want to educate about wine, which is the whole point of this podcast, we want to educate people about wine, we do have to acknowledge that, yes, knowledge is very important. And cultivating knowledge and education about wine is very important to understanding wine and how it works, why it behaves the way it does uh, from a market standpoint, why certain aroma compounds are present in certain wines and not other wines. Like These are things that really do matter and help enrich your perception of wine. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But don't crap all over the people who do want to know that. Well, no, it's like it would be the same like we had the example of the doctor, but I would also say it's like the example for a mechanic. It's like... You may not know everything about cars. And mm-hmm. if somebody comes up to you and is just like, hey, you should actually be changing your oil every every like 2,000 miles, you might get offended at the fact that they just told you to do a thing that you weren't doing, but that doesn't mean that they aren't correct and that you're not destroying your vehicle. Yeah. These are things that are realities in wine. There are entire fields of study. There are entire product lines that are designed in order to be able to help to curate the flavor of a wine. Yeah. Just because you don't know it, And just because there are a couple of jerks out there doesn't mean that you should suddenly write off the field. Mm -hmm. And as we just said, particularly when it comes to price points of wine, there is a correlation of, I'm not even going to say wines that you'll like, because that's not true, but certain flavor compounds and and, uh, aroma profiles, like oaking, for example, that increase the price of a wine to a certain point again as i said at the beginning of the episode over a hundred dollars to me is highway robbery i'm not into it but i get why certain wines are priced that a lot of that has to do more with market forces than anything it's not really a direct reflection of the wine itself i get it but it does still need to be acknowledged that wine within certain parameters the price will reflect the quality that you're getting you might not like what certain profiles of a quality wine tastes like not everybody likes fine yeah not everybody likes a riesling that smells like petroleum exactly some people i do some people want a sweet riesling that tastes like peaches do you 
But also know that if you're drinking a $6 Barefoot Riesling that fits that profile, there might be a $15 Riesling from Mosul or Rheinhessen or something that fits that profile, but is also just a better version of that Barefoot wine that you might be missing because you don't want to spend outside of that Barefoot price point. So if your bias is there because you think that people can't create a quality product, that's on you. Yeah. Try new things, go to tastings, they'll typically give you a good deal on the tasting itself, and don't let your perception be painted by your negative standing. And to be clear, if you are someone that has tried every wine under the sun and you still have landed at Barefoot, I don't understand you, I won't lie, but I won't judge you either. I'm not trying to call up people who drink lower quality high volume brand wines, but it, again, it's it's the refusal to go outside of that that bothers me. I'm sure that there is something else about you that I can learn to respect. <laughs> sure. Your determination. Your, determination. your loyalty. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, but uh, unless you had anything else to say, uh, I, I was going to close out the episode with a quote about education. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that we've covered a lot today about our perception on these things. Um, again, uh, when it comes down to it in the exploration of wine, it's going to be an honest conversation between you and your perception. That's the only thing that I can really say. And when you do allow yourself to actually get into how wines are made and how different things can influence them, like terroir and all of that stuff, there are experts out there that if you develop your critical thinking, you'll be able to discern the difference from. If your quality of study and practice, though, is poor, and I don't mean that as an attack against your intelligence, I mean to say that your methodology can actually impact whether or not You're even pulling from the right people when you are looking for experts to learn from. So make sure that you are developing your critical thinking. Make sure that you are studying how your perception works. Make sure that you are looking at how people talk when they're trying to manipulate you as opposed to how actual experts in a field talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I... I, um, I think that it's a great idea to look at a lot of Daniel J. Levitin's stuff on the difference between uh, the con man and the expert as a developmental thing for your critical thinking. Because honestly, con men and people who are going to be trying to use prestige in place of expertise, they're wasting your time and they're going to frustrate you. And then you're going to become the contrarian or the snob Mm -hmm. and you don't want to waste your time that way you don't want to waste other people's time don't perpetuate that culture yeah develop yourself mentally so that you can enjoy things more relaxed because you don't want to have politics or prestige influencing which should be just an enjoyable experience exactly so to close out i have a quote from bell hooks and that is about education And it is to educate as the practice of freedom is a way of teaching that anyone can learn. That learning process comes easiest to those of us who teach, who also believe that there is an aspect of our vocation that is sacred, who believe that our work is not merely to share information, but to share in the intellectual and spiritual growth of our students. To teach in a manner that respects and cares for the souls of our students is essential if we are to provide the necessary conditions where learning can most deeply and intimately begin. Boom. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we're teachers and you're our students, although, you know, we do try to educate. Uh, But I I picked this quote mainly because wine touches on so many topics. 
from agriculture to climate change to microbiomes to even neurology, and the list just kind of keeps going. And to democratize wine knowledge, which is what we're seeking to do, and remove barriers to entry, which again, we seek to do, can help ensure a more open and honest dialogue about the shortcomings of wine experts, but also the need for expertise. You know, you you do need people who can guide and correct where necessary. And that's why I like this quote a lot is education as the practice of freedom to not be spoken down to by an authority who knows better than you, but to be informed in a way that you seek to then pursue something that gives you pleasure and enjoyment yeah, and opens your horizons to new topics that you might not have even thought about earlier that wine can open you up to. No, I love that. It's So I've been thinking about this for a while, this concept, and it's the idea of viewing teaching and being taught as being equipped rather than controlled. And viewing the process of learning as gaining tools of interaction as opposed to being corrected. And I find that a lot of people approach learning one of two ways. They either approach learning from this perspective of, I am wrong, and I need to be corrected, and so I'm doing this thing in order to learn, in order to, cre- uh, in order to correct what I'm doing wrong. And what that does to a person is that their body will eventually want to get revenge against the learning process yeah. because they are psychologically harming themselves every time that they are trying to learn something new. And it makes them shrink because they feel like they have to diminish in order to become. And there's an element of truth to the idea of what you become ends up replacing what you were, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that it's not about correcting you. It's about equipping you. Yeah. And the other type of learner is the one that sees everything that they learn as a tool in order to get more of what they want. Mm -hmm. As a tool in order to interact and appreciate the world around them. Yeah. And that's what I think is beautiful. And that's the change that I've had to actually make in the way that I approach learning. Because I was very much so the there's something wrong that I'm having to correct type of person. And I realized that it was holding me back from actually that freedom, that expression of freedom where you are facilitating people being able to interact more with something that you find beautiful. And also that you and your process of learning are being equipped to soar into that world to mm-hmm. see more of what's possible yeah. to think thoughts you've never had before yeah and with that being said um what are we gonna talk about next <sighs> all right we're gonna talk about breathing next time <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be just a meditation episode where we do nothing but breathing techniques we're not gonna even describe them it's just gonna be us <laughs> breathing it's gonna be the most uncomfortable 45 minutes of your life <laughs> no oh, I, w- I had a couple of ideas um, because we were talking about perception, I would love to do maybe like a little special blind tasting episode and, okay, you know, stuff like that. Um, so that might be fun, but, uh, what, what else might we do? We haven't done a spirits episode in quite a while. I was thinking, I was thinking. Yeah. So maybe we could do something with spirits. Just do me Dory. Malort <laughs> tasting. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Maybe a spirits episode would be kind of fun. I would love to... I've always wanted to try Uzo. Ooh. 
Ooh. And Uzo has a pretty rich history in Greece, too, so... Maybe we should do an episode of Uzo. We'll see. We we have we'll some ideas. We have some ideas. So we have some ideas. Maybe you'll get some hints on our social media posts as we're doing the research for the next episode. Yes. Can't tell you now because I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, thank you guys so much for joining us on this journey. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or concerns, please do DM us on one of our various social media websites. And we love you very much and we hope you have a fantastic week. And Happy New Year, because I don't think we've actually said that yet we on the podcast. We have not said that. Oh, my God. Yeah. And there will be two now episodes in the new year before this one comes out. So apologies. But uh, Happy <laughs> New Year, everyone. Happy New Year's, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.